Today, the Assyrian people are a Semitic, largely Christian ethnic enclave native to parts of Syria, Turkey, and Iraq, with diasporic communities in Europe, Canada, the United States, and even parts of Central and South America. Having been the subjects of several empires throughout history, including the Ottoman Turks and the Sassanid Persians, they may seem a meek, unassuming lot, but I can assure you that nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, they can trace their lineage directly back to an empire of their own, that of Assyria, an ancient superpower in the Near and Middle East that proved to be quite formidable at the height of its glory days. For some 700 years between the 14th century BC and the 7th century BC, this great sovereignty laid claim to lands as far west as Egypt and as far east as Persia. A great many kings ruled over Assyria within this span of time, but of them all, perhaps none was as great as Ashurbanipal, from the Assyrian Ashurbaniapli, meaning Ashur, that is, the chief creator deity of the Assyrian pantheon, is the creator of the air. As his name would suggest, he has come to be seen as something close to semi-legendary in the years since his reign. Due to the combination of historical records his administration left behind, as well as the buildings and monuments he commissioned, to say nothing of Greek and Roman sources, these last of which don't exactly portray him in a favorable light. But what's the real story behind the man whom many consider to be the greatest of Assyrian rulers? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and Bishenati Lohun, Welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. If you were to visit room 10A of the British Museum in London, you'd be treated to a marvelous sight. There surrounding you on all sides are a series of stone reliefs that once adorned the royal palace at Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They depict a lion hunt, and though the images have been carved into stone, they still manage to convey a great deal of movement, to say nothing of drama and spectacle. At the head of this hunt is a man in a chariot, with a driver standing beside him. From his impressive headgear and jewelry, it's clear that he's a person of high rank, perhaps even a king. You'd be correct in your assumption, as this is none other than the mighty Ashurbanipal. Archaeologists agree that the purpose for these reliefs was to not only show the power of Assyrian kings, but also their taming of nature. So holy and divine were these leaders that their lineage was said to be traced directly from the gods. But great as this king may have been, he was neither divine nor a god. Born in around 685 BC, he was the son and heir apparent of Esarhaddon, his father and predecessor. He also had an elder brother, Shamashumukin, the latter of whom would come to rule Babylonia as a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. As early as 673 BC, when Ashurbanipal was just eight years old, Esarhaddon had chosen him as successor. A year later, in May of 672 BC, both Ashurbanipal and Shamashumukin were crowned princes of their respective sovereignties, in a ceremony attended by Assyrian nobles foreign representatives and dignitaries, as well as a military procession. It was around this time that Ashurbanipal also married his future queen, Libali Sharat. Esarhaddon's claim to fame had been the conquest of Egypt, doubling the empire's territory. In short, the young Ashurbanipal had big shoes to fill, the opportunity to try them on of which would present itself three years later in 669 BC, when Esarhaddon died. Thus the new king assumed command of the throne while his brother came to rule Babylonia a year later in 668 BC. No sooner had Ashurbanipal ascended to the highest-ranking position in the land did he set to work on his kingly duties. A new successor meant taking on the previous ruler's problems, and while Esarhaddon had successfully brought Egypt into the Assyrian fold, ruling it proved to be far more difficult than initially thought. Because of its remoteness and proximity to the Assyrian administrative center at Nineveh, the Egyptians proved to be an unruly lot, who often rebelled against their colonial overlords. Esarhaddon had appointed local Egyptian nobles to rule over the vassal state in the hopes of quelling these outbreaks, but most of them ended up joining the revolt anyway. 
Following his father's death, Ashurbanipal went about bringing a peaceful end to the uprisings, but a massacre at the Assyrian garrison in Memphis at the hands of Egyptian rebels caused him to wage war instead. Sending an army to Egypt, the new king vowed to vanquish the enemy and, quote, bring them back to Nineveh in chains, unquote. On the way, the army made stops along the Levantine coast to collect tribute from the various vassal states there that were under Assyrian control. This bolstered their cause, as provincial rulers like Manasseh of Judah and various governors from Cyprus provided them with both troops and weapons. Once in Egypt, they squared off against the rebels, the latter of whom were being led by their former pharaoh Taharqa. There the Assyrians won a decisive victory in the city of Karbanitu, causing the pharaoh and his forces to withdraw from the garrison at Memphis and flee to the upper Egyptian city of Thebes before retreating into the Nubian wilderness to the south. But the conflict was far from over. Five years later, in 664 BC, Taharqa died. His nephew, a boisterous young man named Tantamani, quickly proclaimed himself pharaoh and invaded Upper Egypt, reclaiming Thebes before advancing towards Memphis. Upon receiving word of this news, Ashurbanipal once again sent an Assyrian force into Egypt, where they proceeded to plunder the temples at Thebes, one of the most important Egyptian religious centers. Indeed, so savage was their attack that the city would likely have been completely destroyed were it not for some skillful diplomacy on behalf of its governor, a man named Mentuemhat. With Tantamani having fled beyond Egypt's borders, the Assyrian army returned victorious to Nineveh, bearing plunder from Thebes, which they paraded through the capital streets. Sacred objects such as gold idols and red granite obelisks were ultimately melted and broken down respectively, for use in the various civic projects Ashurbanipal would later commission. With the business in Egypt out of the way, it seemed that Assyria could at last focus on its own internal interests, but neither the new king nor his people could have anticipated the drama that was about to unfold. No sooner had the armies returned triumphant from North Africa did a new conflict burst onto the scene. To the east of Assyria, on the fringes of her southeastern border in what's now southwestern Iran, was a kingdom known as Elam. Though the Elamites had carried out frequent raids against Assyria in the past, Esarhaddon had managed to keep them at bay through skillful diplomacy and maintain peaceful relations. However, in 665 BC, the Elamites decided to do away with these terms and carried out a surprise attack on Babylonia, which was governed by Ashurbanipal's brother, Shamashum Ukin. The raid was quickly suppressed with the Elamites being driven back across the Assyrian border. For a time, things returned to normal. But the empire was soon mired in internal conflict as well. A series of revolts broke out following the Elamite raid, whereupon it was discovered that the chief of the Gambulians, a vessel state of Assyria and Babylonia, Belikisha, had supported their efforts. Little is known of this uprising today, the amount of which we do know from a letter preserved on a clay tablet, in which it's inscribed that the governor of the former Sumerian city of Uruk, Nabu Usabsi, was ordered by Ashurbanipal to attack the Gambulians. According to the contents of this letter, Belikisha was blamed solely for the Elamite invasion. No further details to date have been discovered about the resolution of this matter, and the chief of the Gambulians was later killed in a freak accident by a rampaging boar. The ensuing twelve years were marked as a period of peace for Assyria. In that time, however, the Elamites, now under the authority of King Teuman, regrouped and drew up a new plan of attack against Ashurbanipal's empire, which they carried out in 653 BC. Their target was the region of Babylonia, which, as you'll recall, was governed by Ashurbanipal's brother, Shamashum Ukin. As Shamashum Ukin hadn't been entrusted with any sizable military forces of his own, he had to turn to his sibling for support. Ashurbanipal first dispatched his troops to the empire's southern edge, where they secured the city of Der on the frontier between the Sumer region and Elam. Though Teuman and his men marched to meet the Assyrians, he soon changed his mind for reasons that are still unknown to us, and retreated back to the Elamite capital of Susa. 
It was here, just outside the city, that the Battle of Ulai would take place between Ashurbanipal's Assyrian forces and Teuman's Elamite troops, at which time the latter would be killed. The result of this battle was a decisive victory for Assyria, and incorporated Elam into the imperial fold. It wouldn't be a tale of royalty without familial intrigue, particularly jealousy over ownership of the throne and empire. The Roman tradition, for example, had the story of Romulus and Remus, in which the former killed the latter and went on to establish the Eternal City and rule as its first king. So it was, in a way, with Ashurbanipal and Shamashumukin as well. Though Asarhaddon wished for his elder son to govern the entirety of the Babylonia region, actual historic records of the time reveal that he was only given possession of the city of Babylon and its immediate surroundings. As you might imagine, this led to a great deal of resentment on behalf of the elder brother, and it wasn't long before tensions arose. To complicate matters further, the governors of other Babylonian cities, such as Nippur, Ur, and Uruk, all ignored Shamashum-Ukin's title of King of Babylonia, pledging their loyalty solely to Ashurbanipal. Naturally, this didn't sit well with the older brother, and was the proverbial straw to break the camel's back. In 652 BC, having had enough of playing second fiddle to Ashurbanipal and wishing to gain independence for Babylonia, Shamashum-Ukin revolted. The resulting conflict lasted three years. Royal inscriptions commissioned by Ashurbanipal himself assert how his big brother had no trouble in gaining allies. They go on to list some of the nations that had offered up their assistance to Shamashum-Ukin, most of which were located within Babylonia and its environs, the Aramaeans, the Chaldeans, and the Gutians, among others. There were even some Elamites in the mix. In the first two years of the war, countless battles were fought in Babylonia proper, with about an equal amount of victories on both sides. But the tide of the conflict changed when several minor players repeatedly switched their allegiances, further complicating matters. Still, for a while, it seemed as if victory was within Shamashum-Ukin's grasp, based upon the sheer number of allies he had on his side. But greater numbers don't always guarantee success, as we'll soon see. Little by little, the elder brother lost his allies and lands. The truth of the matter was that he simply couldn't keep the advancing Assyrians at bay. By 650 BC, Babylon itself had fallen to Ashurbanipal. According to the king's accounts, the city soon entered a period of famine so dire that, quote, the citizens grew so hungry and desperate that they ate their own children, unquote. Whether this exact detail was true or not remains inconclusive. However, after a two-year siege, the city fell to Assyria in 648 BC. It's here that Ashurbanipal's reputation for brutality was solidified. Not satisfied with the defeat of Shamashum-Ukin and the pillaging of Babylon, the king, quote, carved up the people's bodies and fed them to dogs, to pigs, to wolves, to eagles, to birds of the heavens, to fish of the deep, unquote. In addition, a great fire ravaged the city, at which time tradition holds that Shamashu-Ukin lost his life, though whether by self-immolation or accidentally being swallowed up by the flames remains a mystery. Though this civil war of sorts spelled victory for Ashurbanipal and the Assyrians as a whole, it also sowed the seeds of the empire's own destruction. What ensued was a period of decline that would mark the beginning of Assyria's slow and painful death. The conflict had dealt a crushing blow to the empire's economy, with virtually all of its resources being used up. In addition, resentment and anti-Assyrian sentiment on behalf of the citizens of Babylonia meant that yet another uprising was imminent. This revolt, led by the Babylonian Nabopolassar, would take place just a few years after Ashurbanipal's death, and would spell doom for the Assyrian Empire, as what would come to be known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire would rise to fill the power vacuum in the region. But for now, Assyria was regrouping after its victory, though the winds of war were once again stirring. 
In the wake of Elam's support for Shamashum Ukin, a period of political instability rocked that eastern kingdom to its core, with a fight for the Elamite throne that saw a few kings rule within the span of a few years. During this time, Elamite forces continued attacks on the Assyrian forces from various outposts along the empire's eastern border, causing Ashurbanipal to invade Elam in 647 BC. The Elamite ruler at the time, Humbam Haltash III, fled to safety into the Zagros Mountains of what's now western Iran. After pillaging the Khuzestan region of Elam, the Assyrians returned home, at which point Humban Haltash reinstated himself at his capital of Madaktu. But the Assyrians returned a year later to finish what they'd started. The Elamite king once again fled, only this time Ashurbanipal ordered his troops to pursue him. Along the way they raised cities and gathered up the spoils, and it wasn't long before Elam was crushed. Seeing this, Elamite vassal states soon began paying tribute to the Assyrians, no doubt so as not to be subjected to the same devastation that befell Elamite cities. On the return trip, Ashurbanipal's forces sacked the Elamite capital of Susa, whereupon they desecrated royal tombs, looted temples of their relics and treasure, destroyed idols of Elamite gods, and even spread salt in the otherwise fertile soil to ensure that crops would never be able to grow again. From there, the Assyrian king ordered the destruction of all settlements within the immediate vicinity, the result of which is seen by historians as nothing short of a systematic genocide of the Elamite people. A royal inscription from the palace at Nineveh boasts how, quote, I, Ashurbanipal, entered Elam's palaces. I opened the treasures where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. Tombs I devastated, I destroyed, I exposed to the sun, and I carried away their bones towards the land of Ashur. Such tactics were brutal, even by ancient standards, and firmly established both Ashurbanipal and the Assyrians as forces of chaos and devastation. Despite this reputation and the near-constant wars that seemed to take place within and outside the empire's borders, Ashurbanipal's reign was an all-battle, conflict, and bloodshed. His rule ushered in a golden age of sorts for Assyria, the last of its kind before it too would fall at the hands of another. Seeing himself as a man of brains as well as brawn, he commissioned the building of a massive library in Nineveh, one whose collection would only be surpassed by the construction of the Library of Alexandria some four centuries later. Boasting a collection of some 30,000 texts, each of which was inscribed onto clay tablets using an ancient writing system known as cuneiform, they're one of the primary reasons we know so much about Ashurbanipal's reign, as well as Assyria as a whole. Works within this vast collection include histories, literature, and even foreign texts written in a multitude of languages such as Hebrew, Babylonian, Sumerian, Elamite, and even ancient Egyptian. The oldest known literary work, the Epic of Gilgamesh, was one of the texts discovered in the library's ruins in the 19th century, and the reason why it's still known and read today. Other projects included the construction of various temples, especially those dedicated to the god Ashur and the goddess Ishtar, as well as a series of relief carvings on the palace walls that offer tantalizing glimpses into Ashurbanipal's daily life and military campaigns. After 639 BC, records of Assyrian history become scant, no doubt due in large part to the decline the empire was experiencing as a result of years of constant warfare, most notably the recent skirmish and subsequent genocide of the Elamites. Though the king led his soldiers in campaigns against various Arab tribes and cities in the Arabian Peninsula following the fall of Elam, it's believed that political strife was one of the reasons for so few historical accounts at the time. The two known documents to mention Ashurbanipal from this period are, as well as with other texts and fragments, inscribed on clay tablets. They reveal a rift between the king and aristocracy, in which he promoted lesser courtiers such as eunuchs and other attendants to higher positions of power, at times completely overlooking the nobility altogether. Such moves are seen as self-indulgent, though why he did it is still somewhat of a mystery to us. 
It's stories like these that perhaps gave rise to later Greco-Roman sources surrounding Ashurbanipal. The legend of Sardanapalus, as he's known in such documents, reveals a decadent monarch ruling over an empire in decline. While he lives in the lap of luxury, his lands are quite literally burning and crumbling while he's oblivious or simply unfazed by it all. It's difficult to say which of these ancient sources is truer to what really happened. Regardless, in 631 BC, the year of his death, Ashurbanipal was succeeded by his son, Ashur-etil-Ilani, the greatest king of Assyria was just 54 years old. His son would fare little better in improving the empire following years of war, and would die just three years after ascending to the throne. After that, sensing the empire's weakness and taking advantage of the situation, the Babylonians revolted. They'd been strongly anti-Assyrian for years at that point, ever since the disastrous uprising led by their former leader, Shamashum Ukin. Thus they set about conquering Nineveh and all of Assyria's former lands, and consolidating them into what became known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire shortly thereafter. With such changes, the glories and greatness of Ashurbanipal were forgotten, lost to the sands of time until the 19th century, when his library, palace, and other civic projects were unearthed by French, British, and Iraqi archaeologists. Sometimes it's difficult to chart the downfall of a mighty empire. In the case of Assyria, it was simply a combination of the volatility of the region, combined with years of constant warfare that ultimately led to its demise. Despite this, Ashurbanipal, though ruling at the tail end of Assyria's glory days, is considered to be the greatest of its rulers. A strong and fierce leader, he built upon his father and predecessor's vision of expanding the empire's borders while simultaneously ushering in a golden age that saw a flourishing of arts and culture. There have been many monarchs throughout history, some great, some small, but I think it goes without saying that Ashurbanipal is one of the few rare, larger-than-life ones who will continue to inspire and fascinate so long as humanity endures. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed learning all about the greatest of Assyrian kings. I apologize for the gap last week, but I simply didn't have time to finish my research or write-up, though I'm glad to have returned this week. By the way, a very happy Passover and Easter to my Jewish and Christian listeners, respectively. May these holidays bring joy and blessings to you and your loved ones. If you love learning and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can do this by visiting podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support this podcast button. You'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help out, so please do so through the above link or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in again next week as we explore one of the biggest disasters in Irish history, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time. Thank you.